0: Mark chapter 6 is where we will resume our study. This is really an extension of last week's sermon in two ways. One, we're looking at an extension of the story we were studying in Mark chapter 6, the commissioning of the disciples. We're now going to get part two of that story. And it's also another timely moment in the Word of God for where we are at in the calendar year, as so many of us think about the year that lays ahead we find ourselves looking at another foundational building block of life in this passage of Scripture. So we'll be in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30, and working till the end of this picture or narrative that Mark is painting for us. Uh, before we get into it, I will also point out that a Christmas is officially over, uh, it officially ended. Friday, if you have gone to our church for long enough, no doubt you've heard one of our elders, Tom Velasco, share and remind all of us that Christmas is a 12-day celebration beginning when we remember his birth on Christmas Eve and then celebrating all the way into January 6th, which was a reminder and a celebration of when the wise men bring the gifts, the epiphany, when they saw the, the baby in the manger for the first time. So, with that said, you can now all exhale Because the season of the holidays is officially over, and it's not unlikely that as part of this exhale, we're all experiencing, some of you, maybe all of us, are going through what they call the holiday hangover. Have you heard this term? I'll share, you, share with you uh, the urban dictionary definition because I find this particular uh, truth about what happens after you spend a lot of energy doing anything and just the hangover that follows appropriate for what we're about to study. The holiday hangover is the sadness experienced after the holiday season ends caused by a variety of factors such as a schedule that was overloaded, poor food choices, pause, (laughs) taxed emotions, and a general feeling of exhaustion. So how many of us felt the exhale of all of that? It reminds me of that, that verse in the song, Mom and Dad can hardly wait for school to start again. We're ready for all of this excitement to transition into a time where we can all catch our collective breath. And no doubt you can relate to some of that. The problem is it's never just a holiday hangover. It seems as though life is a collection of very busy seasons and then an attempt for all of us to catch up on sleep, but then the next busy season comes before we're ready. And so... This is going to be true, of course, of the year ahead. As much as, us, as we wanted to just catch our breath and rest from the holidays, we are already full swing into the new year. College students are going back to school, and midterms are around the corner, and there will be final exams, and parents' school is starting, and kids are back into the rush of getting them out the door and getting everything ready, and the sports seasons are going to start. And every time the rush Happens anew, there will be another call to try to catch your breath, and it is the challenge of the times we live in. And lest we think that this is a modern problem, as though we're just so busy and our calendars are so full, if only we could go back to the way it was, um, we are studying a moment in the ministry and the discipleship of Christ today that reminds us that this is a human problem. There is a human challenge in the fact that we are made in the image of an eternal God. And he's given us a soul that needs to be refreshed by his presence. And it is a constant reminder with the business of life that we are running out of energy all the time. And so today we come to a passage of Scripture where Christ is going to teach his disciples how to move beyond this very season that we find ourselves in. And not to do it once a year with a vacation or a nap, but actually how to live your life in such a way that you are trusting God not only in your work, as we looked at all last week. The commission of the disciples, trust God for the purpose of your life, foundation of the new year. Now, the more primary foundation, trusting God not only for your work, but also for your rest. How are we people who are separate and different than the culture and the times and the human condition of exhaustion, by knowing Christ. And so we find ourselves picking up the story in Luke chapter 6, verse 30. It says in verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So, Once again, we find ourselves with a moment in the story of the disciples following Jesus that gives us some necessary context. Remember last week, a short recap, as they come back giving a report of all that they had done, both taught and what they had done, this is reminding us what we studied. As Jesus is rejected by his own in Nazareth, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. He uses this low point of ministry as an opportunity to multiply the efforts and take the disciples from just students to now actually apostles or sent ones. They will—they were equipped two by two to go to a variety of cities and villages with the power of the Holy Spirit to work mighty wonders in his name and preach a message of repentance. And that message we looked at as a reminder for all of us that those who follow Jesus will go from being students to being in the game. And we all looked at that as a great New Year reminder that For us to have purpose for 2023 and this year, we need to be commissioned by Christ in whatever way he sends us. But there's now a follow-up message because they return and they give their amazing, what we would call, praise report. It's working. We've done great things with the power that you gave us, and we've taught people, and we've done works, and what is the response of Christ? It says in verse 31, And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves, To a deserted place and rest a while. Now, there is a sermon that could be preached in the verse that I just read that would land very smoothly for our current times, which could be all about self care, because that's a very popular thing to think about for the health of your work life balance and just who you are. Uh, We could look at this and say Jesus is giving the disciples something that we now know as modern people is just healthy and proper some downtime some you time. And there's certainly value in that. Jesus is actually calling them to a time of rest. But if we put this into the category of simply a you deserve you time and self-care message, we'll probably miss the point of everything that unfolds after. So Jesus is all for rest, but it has less to do with self-care and more to do with who we are trusting in. Who do we believe is responsible for any power and any success and any effectiveness in our work? And so he says, as a clue that this is not just about the disciples getting a nap, he says to them, come aside by yourselves. And he gives them some mechanics for a, you could study this verse and say, it is good for you to know how Jesus prescribes alone time. He says, get away. So get out of your normal context. Go somewhere where you can be alone and find rest. But point, I'm going to point out that he says to come. He's not saying to go. He does not say, as they give the report, okay, great. Now you need some downtime. All of you go to your cabin retreat. And when you're done with that, come back in a couple of days and I'll meet you here. He says, come which is giving us a clue as to what this story is actually about. Jesus is calling them to spend intimate time with him. And before we go into how that story unfolds, how they are going to come aside with Jesus to be by themselves, Mark is going to give us some reasons that rest is required. And so this is for all of us who uh, may try to categorize the need for rest into something that doesn't quite yet apply to you. I think that as we study this story, we find three reasons that Jesus is calling them away that every single one of us to relate to. They're going through all three at once, but they can hit you in three different ways as well. The first one is very obvious in verse 31 in the second half. He says, for there were many coming and going, and they did not have time to eat. So for the first reason that we see very plainly, it's clear that they were just maxed. It says they were coming and going, a reference back once again to last week. He's sending them to cities and villages. Those who received them, they would preach. Those who rejected them, they kept moving. And it says they're so busy in the ministry of preaching the gospel of repentance that they don't have time to eat. So the first category is that they are at a physical breakpoint. They are worn out. They're tired physically, and a representation of being tired physically is if you don't have time to eat, your body will eventually fail. And we may think of this as a need that we can't relate to, especially coming out the season of December, but because we all eat very well. I understand that. But we also have to remember what these people would have thought of with time to eat. They're not simply driving through the falafel shop to get something on the way home. This is a, a culture that valued times to eat as downtime, rest, and fellowship. So when they don't have time to eat, they are no longer slowing down to break bread, which will be one of the tenets of the the Christian faith moving forward, that believers take time to seek God together and slow down and break bread, and they're not doing that. So now we actually do have a call to the American church to listen to people who don't have time to eat. It's not that we don't have enough calories coming in. We don't have enough time together at the dinner table. We're so busy that we don't have anything that is calling us to be together around a meal. So in our physical needs relating to this story, hopefully some of us will say, you know, if I'm too busy to eat, with the people of God in my life then I'm probably too busy. Now, there's two other reasons that we can find that some of us will relate to, but we have to look before and after the story. So, first before, we now come to another reason that these disciples are needing time aside with Jesus in verse 29. It says when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So if you'll remember, we left off last week at the end of the commissioning when the disciples had been sent into different cities, and now we're picking up the story as they return. Now, Mark is, not the first time, famous for sandwiching stories within stories. So the story of the disciples being sent and returning has a narrative inside of it all about the life and death of John the Baptist. We remember John the Baptist, the first forerunner of Christ. He sent the message of repentance in the, in, in the Jordan River that led to the commissioning of Christ himself going into ministry. And this story is inserted as a reminder that it will be challenging to be commissioned by Christ. It will be unto death. And one of the things that the disciples could be reporting as they come and say everything that is happening is, we just lost one of, a, one of the key figures of this movement, his head has been chopped off, put on a platter, and made a political example of, and the disciples now return after just burying the corpse of the second person of the movement. Could you imagine? And so now I know we're bringing more people into the need for rest in this story because no doubt one of the ways that we are people who are feeling the press of life is not just through physical exhaustion, but it is through the emotional low low points as well. And right now, there are some of you who are coming into worship, and you are singing about the greatness of God through tears and sorrow. It's true of every time we gather. Every Sunday morning we gather, there are those who are here because God has to minister and comfort their heavy hearts. And when you find yourself in that season of life, the wisdom of the world fails you when it says to power through and push through and just get to the next thing and never mourn the loss. And so we are people who believe fully that those who die in Christ will be raised first. But we're also people who fully mourn the emotional low point of losing someone in your life. And of course, there's all sorts of other emotional low points on our list of the holiday hangover was just being taxed emotionally. When you get a collection of people together for the holidays and the celebration and the stress of the holidays, when you are going through an emotional low point, Christ says, come away by yourself, push pause on the busyness, and be with me. And now we look for the third category of times where rest is required. And for this, we reread what we already read in verse 30 because this report that the disciples give probably has the spiritual need for rest in a way that the rest of the story unfolding will address more than any other thing. And this is what it says. When the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, now read it again, what they had done and they had taught. So the categories as we introduce the third one are the physical breakpoint, the emotional low point, and the spiritual high point. We have to be so careful in our life as a reminder when we go through these times where Christ is so exalted and we are so blessed and we are part of the commission and we see great success, there is a danger that we see like a pattern of scripture where God is blessing people and anointing them with power to be used for him There is a temptation to think that you're doing something. Look at all that we have done. And look at all that we have taught. And yet they come to Christ, and this is not a message of affirmation. No high five. This is a message of spiritual high point needing to return to spiritual poverty which is where we actually find the blessing of God, resting in him, not at a spiritual high with everything we've done, but at a spiritual low, once again, reminding ourselves through our commitment to rest that apart from God, we actually do nothing of any value. And how could you not think of another teaching in this moment where Jesus uses the report, the faithful report of those who have done things in his name as a warning to all of us in Matthew chapter 7. It says that in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. On that day, they'll say, we've done great things in your name. We've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've won mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say, depart because I don't know you. It doesn't matter what we do in his name. If we lose sight of him, we are wasting our life. And this is a message to be laid as the primary foundation, lest we think that the commissioning that we studied last week is actually your primary purpose. Your primary purpose is to f- so fall so in love with God and trust in him and depend on him so greatly that you will be commissioned, that you will say yes to whatever plan he has for your life. And so it is with the physical breakpoint, the emotional low point, and the spiritual high point that Jesus says, let's come away and rest. And this is where the story will then give answers, surprising as they be, as to how Christ offers rest to each one of these categories. It says in verse 32, so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Praise the, the the obedience of the disciples is to be praised. I will commission you all to see this as a call or an invitation of christ in your own lives to get away to a deserted place by yourself to find rest and one way that you can just be an obedient applier of the word today is to do it so the disciples hear the invitation they hear the call and they go and this is in verse 32 the last time that you will see the gospel writer give a recount of this story describing the disciples by themselves So the plot twist is coming up. Jesus had a plan for the disciples to get away and be alone. And yet the closest they get to being by themselves is the boat ride. (laughs) So this story, once again, is not simply an expose or the mechanics of self-care because that's not where the story leads us. It is a story in obedience to seek after rest. It's a story in finding rest in the journey And it's also a story in the surprising way God provides for our soul. But the idea that they just go off to the deserted place and they find a cabin in the woods with a swag bag and a retreat schedule waiting for them with a name tag is wrong. That's not what happens. It says in verse 33 The multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, meaning Christ, and ran ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together. So here's the scene. Christ had a small meeting with his disciples. They give this praise report. And he, with the wise and mighty counsel of the, the master, says, It's now time for you to rest. And somewhere along the journey, they get into a boat and they pass through a multitude of people who recognize Jesus. And it says it recognized, they recognize them, and they said, We want in on that. A reminder as we study the gospels, Christ. When in his earthly ministry and the people who interacted with him and saw him, he was famous in his day. People longed to be around him. Throngs of crowds followed him wherever he would go. And once again, we have an opposite reaction as would be appropriate. Last week, he comes on the heels of the great ministry peaks and casting out the demoniac and healing the the woman with the flow of blood and raising a child from the dead. And now the hometown hero returns to an absolute dud. No parade. No one greets him. No one trusts him. And now he actually does want to get away. And what do we find? We find a welcome committee waiting for him. And this really is, as we continue to think about a new year ahead of us, a reminder for all of us with your plans, with the way that you hope to see your life unfold with the providence of God and your plans being blessed by Him, that the life of Christ, the call of His disciples, and every single one of us who are following after Jesus, we are walking through a series of interrupted plans. Time and time and time again, Jesus is on his way somewhere, and ministry happens on the way to where he was going. And the people that he needed to minister were the ones that caught his attention in the street, or outside the temple, or on the shores of the boat. And so often, the plan is actually about the interruption. And we have another story of that now. And the question that we all have to ask as followers of Jesus and those who study the way of Christ, how does he handle interruptions? And then it might be worth asking, how do we apart from him? The first answer is given to us very clearly in verse 34. It says, Jesus, when he came out and saw the great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. The answer for anyone who wants to follow Jesus is that when people interrupt your plan for rest or vacation or downtime or alone time or your spiritual devotion time, to follow Jesus means that plans can and will be interrupted. I think of my own holiday hangover and the desire for rest and exhaustion to to somehow make friends. And we had a couple days in between Christmas and New Year's to exhale. And uh, on one of those nights, our kids stayed up very late, which is very rare for us because, you know, school year, get them down, wake up early, morning routine. But uh, our kids stayed up till one night, which we were like, this is crazy. But the next day is going to be so nice. They're going to be so tired. (laughs) And of course, plans get interrupted (laughs) at 6 a.m. the next morning. I wake up to my youngest uh, son, Tommy, three and a half years old, standing in the hall, just staring at me. And he says, I'm hungry. And I was like, you should be sleeping for the next four hours. So how do I handle interruptions? Now, Christ has compassion on these moments. Now, the spirit in me, the Christ instinct Regarding the people that interrupt my plans, would be to look at my three and a half year old son and realize that he is exhibiting the faith of a child to trust in their father's ability to provide for food at any hour. And he comes to me, trusting me, and I would look at him and I'd say, You're only gonna be three and a half years once. And this is a precious time between you and I for me to train you and teach you in the way that you should go. And while the whole house is sleeping, you and I take part in some biblical discipleship. <laughs> and you laugh because you know that's not what happened. I stood up and I, I got a banana off the fruit rack and I threw it out and I was like, peel it yourself, I'm going back to bed. <laughs> because interruptions are frustrating. And you imagine now the disciples on their way to their disciple retreat that they've earned after the first great commission ever. And they see a multitude And then the master gets out, the teacher gets out, and it says he has compassion. A foundation of following Jesus is compassion is to see people who are in your way, who are otherwise lost, who do not know the same truth that you know, who do not have the same status as disciple that you have, and yet to know Jesus is to know the heart of compassion for anyone in need. The people of God, the followers of Christ, are his vessels for compassion in our world. And we get a now great picture of how he describes what he sees, not as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity. It says in the second half of verse 34, he has compassion because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. This is what Christ sees. This is what I had the potential of seeing in my son. This is what I believe Jesus sees in a generation of lost souls walking towards the gates of hell, lost in their sin, deceived by the spirit of the air, walking in darkness, committed to evil. And we can look at them as the enemies of Christ and we can clench our fist and thank God that we have a church that honors him. Or we can see sheep lost and scattered without a shepherd. There are four great metaphors to help us understand the unfathomable love of God in a way that we can relate to. And we see them now playing out to help us know who it is that is inviting us into the rest. So I'll I'll share the metaphors with you. Of course, we have the father-son metaphor. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. A a way to understand the love of God is to do your best to remember how much your parents loved you or now to look down on the generation that you're raising and say, I love them unto death, these children. How much more does God love me? Of course, another great metaphor is husband and wife. That's why we stand as lights in the dark of our culture by proclaiming the blessing of God over the unit of the family. That's one of the ways that we will combat the chaos of our world is by continuing to raise up the beautiful metaphor of a husband laying down his life for his wife just like church or just like Christ does for the bride. Another metaphor which is probably less popular but just as important. It is the metaphor of master and slave. It is that God truly is the master of creation, and if you belong to the family of God, you've been bought with a price, and your life is not your own. And we remind ourselves of that metaphor as we're being invited into a time of faith-filled rest to know that this is not something that God is offering as an advice session for the people of God. This is us realizing that the creator of the universe has designed us from the very beginning. Six days of creation and the seventh day is rest. From the very beginning, we submit to the design of God as bondservants of Christ. We long for him in rest. And then, of course, we have, maybe my favorite of all the metaphors, the shepherd and his sheep. And when Christ comes and sees people, he is always seeing them with these metaphors in some way in mind. And isn't it beautiful that he calls his people to a deserted place and then he looks at them as a shepherd would care for sheep. God wants his people to know all throughout the Old Testament, the metaphor, I am shepherding my people. God wants us to know all through the the Old Testament that he cares for his people the way that a shepherd would care for his flock. And he also wants us to be reminded, as we can be now, that if God is like a shepherd, we truly are like sheep. We are lost without him. (laughs) The condition of your heart and your mind and your soul is like the condition of a wayward sheep wandering away from the fold and trying to make it on your own. Unfortunately for our times, we are farther removed from the relationship we have with just seeing sheep in action, but it doesn't take much time with the sheep to remind you that they're helpless little animals. They need help eating. They need help sleeping. They need help being protected from danger. They need help resting. And it is with that metaphor in mind that Jesus says... I have compassion, and now we are going to see that when Christ calls his people, inviting them into the deserted place, he is calling them not simply to take a nap. He's calling them to learn once again what it means to be shepherded by God, and the very first thing he does may surprise us. So the challenge with studying any passage of scripture that is well known is that we miss the things that we've overlooked before. But what does Christ do to show his shepherding heart with compassion? Of course, as the story unfolds, spoiler alert, he's going to meet the physical needs. It was on the list. No time to eat. And he's going to meet the needs of the multitude and the disciples. But before he meets their physical need, what does he do? Verse 34, at the very end. So he began to teach them many things. Your Primary hunger, your primary restlessness, your primary need as someone who needs strength for your soul is not physical. It is not simply a meal and a nap. The primary need of the human condition is spiritual, and part of the reason he takes them to the deserted place and he takes all of us to the deserted place is to remind us what, once again, to depend. On our spiritual sustenance in Christ. And so he teaches them. And what we're doing right now is actually an exercise in this theology being played out in real time. You are coming into the sanctuary of God to experience rest for your soul, your heart, and your mind, not by eating, but by getting the truth that blesses your life, but by getting insight into how you were designed, by getting a reminder of the love of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God to care for you as a shepherd cares for a sheep. And this will then flow from this, the rest that your soul requires. That you can understand there's no condemnation in Christ. And you can rest from your guilt. You can understand that where God guides people, he provides. And you can rest from your worry and your anxiety. You can understand that the word of God is your sustenance. That man cannot live off bread alone, but by every word of God. And now you have rest for your worried soul. And it is, in fact, a pastor's job to feed the flock of God on behalf of the overlord, the shepherd of the, the flock, on behalf of Christ, with the word. We see that in the, in the very beginning as Jesus is commissioning Peter now to help plant the, the beginning wave of Christianity. And what does he say? If you love me, feed my sheep. And how does Peter do that? Not through physical food. He actually passes that ministry off to the first deacons of the church. In Acts chapter 6, he takes the need for food and says, I'm so busy preparing the word and the meal of the word that the deacons are going to care for the widow's needs, and I'm going to focus on preaching and teaching and writing letters to feed the flock of God with spiritual truth. And so this is, as you think about your need for rest, a call to the word of God. You want to find someone who has rest in their soul? Look at their Bible want to find someone who has found the peace of God, look at how they spend time with God practically in the deserted place. Now, we look at another clue as to what this was because, you know, this almost... This format—it's like okay, we're going to teach them, and then we're going to, you know, give them some food. You almost see that as a picture of what happens at the rescue mission. You know, it's like before people get the the turkey dinner, we're going to do a quick ten-minute devo, and some guys will be sleeping in the back. One guy will be paying attention, and then uh, pray for the food, and we'll we'll bless it with uh, some, you know, some some turkey. That's a biblical model. That is here. It's we're going to teach you as a spiritual feeding before we. Give you food for physical. But Jesus didn't give a 10 minute devo. Imagine the scene that we're reading about now. It says in verse 35, when the day was now far spent, which means the, the proper viewing of this story is that the multitudes arrive and the disciples are there looking for rest, and Jesus just takes over the whole show and opens the word and begins to teach. And he teaches. And he shares. And they sit under the teaching of Christ all day long. This is the invitation that Christ pulls them into, not only for their physical need, but for their emotional need and their spiritual need. All day long he teaches them. In fact, it had gone all day long that we're now going to get a lesson given to the disciples as to another layer as to why they were there. It says in verse 35 and 36, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. So the disciples are, you know, looking at the clock. I'm looking at the clock now. And they're like, this was great, but it's gone on far enough. I, uh, I think it's time to close the service. Let's finish with one last song. And then the people, it's about the people. You know, it's like sometimes we get so practical, but it's kind of selfish. It's like if there's no food, so we got we to gotta send them off to get some food. So then why don't we just end this day, Jesus? We'll, let, we'll class dismiss. They can go get some food, and we'll finally get a little bit of time alone. And yet, Jesus, anytime you start commanding Jesus, you're probably going to get a rebuke or or a different answer. And it says in verse 37 that that's actually not the plan. He answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, you can either read this as a very practical question. It was like, where would we get the food? And how would we get so much money to feed all these people? Or you can just read it, as it probably was, as sarcasm. Like, really? How? How are we supposed to do the thing that you told us to do? And now we come back to the beginning of where we started, which was a reminder of the first report that the disciples gave. The first report was, look at all the stuff we've done. We're doing great things. We were out there teaching and preaching and doing awesome things. And now they fall victim to the challenge of scale. Because when it was two by two, and when it was in one town or one village and one household, the disciples are like, yeah, we're going by faith and we're seeing God move. But now there are 5,000 people and they're not sure how they're going to fit the bill. It's a reminder to all of us who think we've done something for God. We are living under the problem of scale. You've done nothing. We are insignificant in the grand view of God's love for this world. We think of this moment right now, and it's like, okay, this is is a pretty good showing. There's a lot of people at church today. There's no one here. (laughs) There's 8 billion people in the world. And we're reaching a fraction which would require so many zeros, I don't know how to say it. And you think about what you're doing, the great success that God will bless you with. And in fact, when you think about what God is actually accompanying through the world, you are insignificant. And if you aren't careful and you think of yourself as meeting the physical needs and doing ministry and providing for people on your own, you'd respond to God when you see his actual view for the love of the world. And you say, really? You're going to bring the whole world to yourself? You've died for the whole world? You're going to offer the gospel to all the nations, to the ends of the earth? If we really put it in scale, we should be responding with sarcasm unless we believe that every tiny work, small, medium, and large, is all the grace of God. Every baptism at Calvary Boise is the grace of God, and the collection of baptisms that happened last year is the grace of God. Every child that grows up to know Jesus and live for him and start a family for him and go on mission for him is the grace of God. Every church that is alive with the Holy Spirit is the grace of God. And when you think about his spirit moving over the whole world and we actually saw what he saw and his redemptive plan to save the lost and die for the world and resurrect the new creation The only way we could reckon it without him was with sarcasm. Really? The dead will raise? We'll be caught up in the sky? There'll be a new heaven and a new earth? Yes. And our contribution is insignificant apart from him, but with him, with him, he blesses it. Look what it says. He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Their response was, five loaves. Now, the story is that they fed 5,000 people plus women and children. So a, a, a very conservative estimate is that they had one one-thousandth of enough bread to feed all the people. And yet, they had enough. This is not a story to say that God is powerful and miraculous and he needs us to offer one one thousandth of of the supply. He could have made bread fall from heaven. I believe he's already done that. It is a message to remind us that God commissions us and he uses our life. And he will use any small offering that we give him to multiply the blessings of God for the kingdom of God. He uses our offerings because he wants to, because he wants us to be involved in the mission of God on earth. And so now you think about what you have to offer God. What do you have to offer God? And you think about the great commission, and you think about all that God wants to do in this world through your life, and you give him whatever you have. As I thought about that question for my own life, I thought, God, I have nothing to offer you. And then I thought, well, I do have a voice that, for whatever reason, you use to say things. That's all I have, really. I have a voice and I have some time to prepare a message, and I offer to you a loaf of bread in the Word of God. And yet somehow God can take feeble words from a, a, a rickety voice and multiply it as a blessing to those of you who have ears to hear the voice of God in the word of God. Verse 39 says, Then he commanded them to make them sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in ranks, in hundreds, and in fifties. This really should not be viewed as two separate stories, the commissioning in the first part of Mark chapter 6, and then the rest. This really is an extension of Jesus bringing his disciples into the ministry. He sent them out to preach as a way to multiply the preaching. And now, as he is about to provide a miraculous meal for the thousands of people who came seeking him with a hunger that he would meet, the disciples are asked to be involved, and I, I love the picture of them sitting on the green grass. We already had Jesus' view of the multitude as sheep scattered without a shepherd, and now we have the response of Jesus causing all of these people to sit on green grass. And how could you not think of the great psalm, chapter 23, when the shepherd cares for the sheep in a way to make them sit down and rest In green grass, it says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still water. He restores my soul. And he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. As Jesus says, come aside to rest. One of the primary lessons that we're learning is that we cannot find rest for our soul without the great shepherd of our soul caring for us. The disciples could not have gone alone without Christ and found any rest for their soul. And yet, with Christ, not only did they find rest, but thousands of people who were in need of the shepherd's hand found rest for their souls as well. Verse 40, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before them. The two fish he divided among them all, they all ate and were filled. I love this picture. Maybe this is a scriptural reference point for why we pray before a meal. It's like, bless the meal, Lord. The Father in heaven, you have provided for us and we bless it by faith, knowing that you will meet all of the needs of your people. But I think it's also a beautiful picture as to how we offer anything to God If a sermon could be a blessing, if your parenting could be a blessing, if you could be a blessing to your workforce or to your neighbors, isn't it a beautiful picture that whatever time and resources you have, you give them to God, and then when God blesses them, God blesses my words, and God blesses your your time with your kids, and God blesses your uh, marriages, and God blesses all of the, the neighborhood mission fields that we have, and when God blesses them, He miraculously multiplies whatever you have to make it a blessing for everyone. And then it says that they were all satisfied. Now, this is the part of the story that we remember, even when plans are interrupted, Christ has a way to redeem them still. This is not a story that ends as a downer, where the disciples say, man, we were looking for rest. Instead, we got more ministry, and now we're burnt out and exhausted, and we quit. Instead, it says they were satisfied, that everyone there was satisfied by the shepherd's moment with his people. And this is the mark of a follower of Christ. The mark, the true set-aside mark of the followers of Christ is not simply that you outwork your neighbor in doing good. It is not simply that you're on the mission field and you have so many great reports to one day give an account of when you meet Christ face-to-face. The mark of your life, the blessing of the shepherd's hand in your life is that he satisfies your soul. That we are people that have a lot or we have a little. We are going through times of great ministry success and great times of ministry downturns. And we are still satisfied in who we are in Christ. And then verse 33, they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of fish, and those who had eaten loaves were about 5,000 men. The number, the detail of the 12 fragments, no doubt, is inserted very specifically to remind us that the disciples themselves were part of the care. It is not that the disciples had to get right back into ministry and find their rest somewhere else. They all get the meal with leftovers. They have more than enough. And so as you think about serving Christ and being called by Christ and then resting in his provisions, you are not taking a vow to a miserable life. You are taking a cross that leads to life and life more abundant. You are going to be a person that represents the satisfaction of a soul that is resting in God, and you will be more than cared for. That is the faith that you're putting into the shepherd of your soul. And so as we practice this practically, we think of the provision that he offers us through his body and his blood, feeding us right now in a miraculous way. I'll end with two more verses from Psalm chapter 23. David, the shepherd king, goes on to say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. We are not an exhausted, worn out, burned out, tired group of people that are holding on till heaven. We are people that believe that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And yet with Christ, we have the offerings that are multiplied and blessed in such a way that our lives are an overflow of the goodness of God. So that may that be true of every office in the kingdom of God that we hold. And may that be true of our church. And may that be true of whatever God has for us in this new year.